Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 36, The Fall of Norfolk, The Birth and Rebirth of the Union Navy. The Union Navy faced a distinct quandary in 1861. The one foe it had never gave any thought to fighting was itself, or rather a renegade splinter state now steering them down on the front door of its own house. It had, in this moment, an untried Secretary of the Navy in Gideon Wells, and was, at that very moment, losing control over some of the most valuable ports in the Western Hemisphere, such as New Orleans, Savannah, and Wilmington, not to mention Charleston Harbor. To explore the journey of the Navy, and to understand the full scope of its expansion in the coming years, we should keep its origins and history in mind. The United States Navy in April of 1861 was a very small organization. It had no more than 1,300 officers, many of whom had served in the ranks for decades. However, that was no very great number when considering the needs to man out large fleets. Indeed, the American Navy frequently only had a handful of warships available and deployed them carefully. At the time the Civil War broke over the nation, for example, the Navy could immediately deploy no more than 12 ships. In the coming months, several others would return from far-flung voyages, and others would be pulled from storage. And this was entirely normal for the Navy, which had never possessed the kind of numbers necessary to outfight a major European power on the high seas. The story of the American Navy begins properly during the Revolutionary War. Facing the powerful, though certainly not invincible, British Navy, the Continental Congress in 1775 fell back on the expedient of merchant raiding. They intended to build a baker's dozen of modern frigates, one for each of the original colonies, to harass the British and prevent them from fully controlling the seaboard. However, several of these ships could not be completed in time and were destroyed lest they face capture. The others did make their presence known by destroying British shipping, however. Yet in the end, the United States could only put together a scratch-built force, and they went on raiding by offering letters of mark. Though a declining practice in that era, it was still considered good law even by the time of the Civil War. Such a letter permitted a private individual to effectively wage war on behalf of an established belligerent power. Those who held letters of mark became privateers. They took the risks of attacking enemy navies and reaped the rewards. Mostly, this involved acts that would otherwise have been described as piracy, but there were some key restrictions. A privateer was only allowed to target hostile navies and, much more often, their flagged merchant vessels. While not necessarily a formal requirement under law, they did have some limits to their actions, depending on the desires, attitudes, and customs of their home nation. In the context of the American Revolutionary War, Little line existed between the formal Navy and privateers anyhow. Men such as the famous John Paul Jones sailed right on that line, as he accepted an officer's commission and then led daring raids to destroy British merchants. Not content with merely clogging the arteries of commerce, he even dared to challenge British naval vessels and attained some hard-won victories in open battle. Now, before we move on, let me assure you that all of that was brought up for good reason. We just described basically the entire playbook of the Civil War 
only with the Confederacy acting as the revolutionaries of 1776, and the Union taking on a role very similar to that of the British Navy. The Confederacy will, however, find themselves with somewhat less success at the end of the day, although they certainly went down swinging. In the aftermath of the American Revolution, the Naval Department became somewhat less important compared to the Army most of the time. The young United States mainly wanted to keep the sea lanes and the vital element of international trade open as much as possible. And indeed, free trade was a major policy goal for the Anti-Federalist Party, who eventually formed into the Democrat-Republicans and became major backers of the Navy. The United States did fight two noteworthy naval wars against the Corsairs of the Barbary Coast in the early American period, although with very limited bloodshed in both cases. Additionally, the United States went to war against France, sort of, in the aptly named Quasi-War. In all cases, the fleets deployed were very small, however, consisting only of a tiny detachment of ships. The word fleet itself may be misleading, as the entire American Navy combined had fewer active ships than an individual British fleet. A mere five American vessels represented a major investment of total naval strength in a navy that often fielded no more than 15 together. Of more interest was the War of 1812. Once again, the American War at Sea mainly involved raiding and harassment of the British forces, but this time it was indeed the formal navy that did more of the heavy lifting. Although the United States eventually turned back British invasions and prevented a serious long-term threat on land, her armies received a number of humiliating defeats caused by incompetent military leadership. Now given time, new and energetic young officers took charge. At sea, however, and also in the gruesome Battle of Lake Champlain, the Navy proved that, though it might lack quantity, it had no lack of quality, and provided some of the key political leverage to end the war on reasonably favorable terms. We will pass over the naval role in the Mexican-American War, partly because we've already seen the major political and military events, but also because there simply wasn't much for the Navy to do except support the Army. Mexico had little naval strength in this period, and so the Navy's job in one sense was already done. Apart from occupying some key ports, they could do no more than dispatch Marines to assist General Scott's march into the interior. Domestically in the antebellum period, the Army would lead the way in establishing a formal officer school at West Point, but the Navy eventually managed to get their own to match, only in 1845. This academy would add a leaven of modern scientific precision to the naval ranks, but it's worth noting now that few of the leading figures in the Civil War went through it. They predated the academy. They learned their trade at sea and in battle. This does not necessarily mean that they were ill-educated. In that era, officers frequently taught themselves important skills from books or pamphlets and skipped formal education. Both officer corps and the sailors were also predominantly Northerners, and rallied to the flag in 1861. A large minority of Army officers left to go south, including men of high standing and exceptional ability. By contrast, only around 300 officers of the American Navy joined them, fewer than 25%, and not necessarily the best of them. A few would show determination, skill, and talent in the upcoming contest. But broadly speaking, the best talent hailed from the North simply by weight of numbers and the advantage of mechanical and technical education. This was no accident. Cities such as New York, Providence, and Boston dominated the American Merchant Navy, 
including actual sea trade and also its fisheries. Many captains who sailed in southern waters based themselves from a northern port or were northern-born. Now, this was never totally exclusive, of course, but it's worth noting that even major southern ports held relatively little shipbuilding capability in the antebellum era, even New Orleans. Only the Gosport Naval Yard in Virginia at Norfolk was a significant naval center site. Now, the American Navy had selected Norfolk as its prime shipyard for strategic reasons. Unfortunately for the Navy, beloved Norfolk fell to the Confederacy in April of 1861 amid a series of bungling mistakes. This retreat had numerous consequences, all of them bad for the Union. Worst of all, however, it was not a necessary loss. The commander in charge, Commodore McCauley, held his ground too long and then panicked over a non-existent threat conjured up by Confederate sympathizing Southerners with more theatrics than soldiers. In the flight that followed, a huge proportion of the port's armaments were not destroyed, or at least not beyond use. Critical equipment survived, and perhaps worst of all, the proud frigate USS Merrimack had to be burned to the waterline and abandoned. Macaulay's actions in March and April, just before and after the attack on Sumter, should be considered in the light of his supposedly loyal subordinates. Although nearly all of the naval command stayed with the Union during the Civil War, many of the specifically Norfolk-based officers went south. They likely leaked information when it suited them and helped the pro-secession press stir up trouble that Macaulay did not want or need. He was surrounded, if not by real threats, then by the shadows of threats on all sides and a hostile, shrieking set of newspapers. Upon taking office, the new Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, prodded Macaulay to work faster, and specifically to move ships and material swiftly out of any threatened area. Unfortunately, Wells inadvertently left Macaulay an escape hatch whereby the latter man could technically obey orders by doing nothing if he felt it would avoid inflaming secessionist sentiment. Those orders clearly intended for him to proceed with everything he could do, but in the end, nothing is what Macaulay did. However, in allowing a military situation to be dictated by treasonous editorializing, Macaulay also did no great credit to the service, nor service to the nation. Macaulay further had not kept the situation in hand, and apparently made no effort to keep the loyalty of his crews. Officers, mechanics, and sailors hurried forward by Washington to speed the repairs and ensure the safety of military hardware found everything left in a state of chaos. Most crucially for what is about to happen, the engines of the steam frigate USS Merrimack lay dismantled to the last bolt. Worried that time did not lie on their side, Gideon Wells' hand-picked men performed admirably to get the ship mobile once more, only for Macaulay to temporize and hold the ship back. At this fatal moment, the vacillating Commodore grew erratic. Even with no real threat to his position, the Confederate militias were having a grand old time running trains around and pretending to have a sizable force. But this didn't exist, and it simply doesn't seem to have fooled anyone else. A small detachment of South Carolina militia was en route, but they failed to arrive even to make a show of it. In the meantime, McCauley began an ineffectual destruction of the naval yard and its crucial materials on April 18th, just after the fall of Fort Sumter. 
He began this just in time to astound reinforcements coming to either secure the position or help evacuate. These events presented those reinforcements under Commodore Paulding with a difficult and dangerous situation. Macaulay had damaged four ships, including the Merrimack, sufficiently that it would be next to impossible to repair the disaster quickly. Meanwhile, Paulding knew that he needed to reinforce Washington as much as Norfolk, and if the ships and materials themselves could not be moved, the Norfolk itself became that much less important. Reluctantly, Paulding ordered the destruction be commenced and continued as best and thoroughly as possible, and then completed the unhappy evacuation as thoroughly as could be managed under the circumstances. Unfortunately, time was not on their side. In their haste, Paulding's officers failed to complete the job, possibly from bad explosives or from a treacherous Norfolk advisor. Worse yet, Paulding soon discovered to his embarrassment the arrival of the good ship Keystone State, which bore enough marines and armaments to hold Norfolk while Paulding returned to Washington. But the Commodore had no idea when or if further troops would be able to occupy the site when he had already made his decisions. He now had to pull out because Norfolk was too exposed following the botched demolitions. In the final summation, Commodore Macaulay's mistakes dealt the Union Navy a blow which took a year of hard fighting to recover from. He failed to act, but also held back from anyone from acting in his stead. Meanwhile, he took precisely zero steps to secure the loyalty of his officers, several of whom seemed uncertain instead of a decidedly pro-Confederate. Had he commanded respect instead of embracing an action, he might have retained the services of several good leaders. Had he acted with resolution at several key points, he could have either held Norfolk or ensured that the Union kept all the valuable guns and machinery. Instead, he managed to collapse in the most spectacular fashion possible. Probably sensing that his own career was long past its end, Macaulay quickly retired from the service, though he received a final promotion in light of his many years of honorable duty. Norfolk proved of immense use to the Confederacy in the early war. The first secessionist-minded militiamen to enter discovered the damage to the facilities was, in the main, repairable. More to the point, given time and access, they discovered the Merrimack salvageable too. Despite the fire damage it suffered and in its sunken state, the ship's hull proved sufficiently strong and the engines intact. The Merrimack, in fact, was something of a valuable prize. It had been the first of a then-experimental steam-screw hull design laid down by the Navy, and it had only been in Federal service for five years. Within days of discovering it, Confederate partisans were already discussing what use they could put it to and the arsenal at Norfolk facilities in general, with its fine granite dock. We will, of course, return to this point, because rather significantly, they decided that the only way to defeat the Union Navy's iron men was with iron ships. Yet the most painful loss for the Union, and the sweetest prize for the Confederacy, was the near total disaster of the whopping 1,200 cannon in stock. Most of these proved repairable as well, Macaulay failed to see them spiked properly, and these quickly filled out fortifications and batteries throughout secessionist armies. For the Union Navy, however, the infuriating events in Norfolk did not inflict despair. Gideon Wells, for one, did not intend to give up. That being said, in the immediate moment, he had rather too little to work with. 
The Federal Navy had lost no ships and few officers to secession, but much of the fleet was out patrolling far from Union shores. And although reasonably modern and well-equipped compared to most nations, the size was a distinct problem. At 40 ships of all classes in total, the Navy simply did not have the numbers to manage the job ahead. However, those weaknesses all concealed strengths. The North held the huge reserve of talent we discussed, with nearly every coastal city boasted an experienced merchant marine. In fact, only Great Britain had a larger merchant navy. In addition, all the prime shipbuilding ports we've discussed and the foundries needed to create new cannon, well, they were all located in the North as well. So both the tooling and armaments lost at Norfolk could be replaced. In the very short term, the Navy resorted to the ancient expedient of obtaining any seaworthy vessel it could beg, borrow, or steal, and outfitted them with whatever cannon were available until more modern ships might roll off the shipyards. Within a few weeks, they managed to expand the active seagoing Navy many times over, and the first purpose-built ships would roll off the docks in only a few months. It's also worth taking a moment to note the impressive achievements of Naval Secretary Wells and his right-hand man, the superb Assistant Secretary Gustavus Vasa Fox, last seen attempting to lead a relief force to Fort Sumter. The two made most of the arrangements to expand the Navy in record time. Fox himself had a fairly distinguished career in the Navy, and now he played an expert role in developing it. If he had a weakness, it lay in his overactive imagination. But Wells usually pulled him back from the wilder escapades, and the pair worked exceptionally smoothly in concert. Gideon him Wells showed a surprisingly quick talent for effective organization for a man who'd never managed anything bigger than a newspaper office, while Fox supplied all the technical skill required. Combined, they changed the Navy from a small security force into a nearly unchallenged military machine. Their first strategic task, however, was answering a difficult question. How should this navy be used? And there were competing ideas. Eventually, the navy would settle on the primary goal of blockading southern ports and closing them where possible. But it's worth noting now that in April of 1861, it wasn't all that clear what the navy would initially attempt to do. Would they be primarily supporting the army? Would they be actively hunting Confederate vessels? And how much of a naval power would the Confederacy become? But, on April 19th of 1861, at practically the same moment that Norfolk was falling, President Lincoln proclaimed a somewhat unusual action, a blockade of all southern ports. There would eventually be complex diplomatic repercussions from this, partly because blockades were normally proclaimed over foreign ports, not domestic ones. And, of course, actually accomplishing this was far easier said than done. Ironically, though, or maybe appropriately, given that this was a civil war, the Union Navy had a secret ally. The Confederacy? Well, yes. While the North was struggling to gain the strength to choke the life out of the ports of the South, the South was busy attempting to blockade itself, due to one of the greatest misjudgments of the war years. Confederates believed, apparently wholeheartedly, that cotton really was king, and that by starving the mills of Europe they could induce England and France to intervene militarily, break any Union blockade, 
and force a pro-Confederate victory. We'll eventually discuss the economics and failure of cotton diplomacy in the future, but for right now, it meant that the Union often found there were far fewer ships to halt than expected, making their job easier in the early days. Furthermore, it turned out that while the land-based ports of the South fell into Confederate hands, a number of offshore islands did not. The Federal government retained some strong points, where loyal garrisons kept order, including Fort Pickens just outside Pensacola, Florida. There was also Dry Tortugas in the Florida Keys. This wasn't much to base a strategy upon, but it gave the Navy a couple safe harbors from which to develop potential attacks anywhere along the Gulf, and they had the resources already to threaten the eastern seaboard. Although the Navy had far too few ships in April of 1861, by December, they would have over 250. That enabled them to pressure an immense stretch of ground, and the threat of naval assault and occupation forced many state governments to build or reinforce fortifications wherever it could be done, often straining their own scarce resources, including manpower and especially cannon. Finally, back in Virginia, the Union Navy may have retreated, but not far. They kept a presence just outside Norfolk at Fort Monroe, north and only a mile and a bit across from the end of the peninsula. Situated on a slender stretch of land and easily defended by the Navy, Fort Monroe never fell into Confederate hands and would very soon become the center of politics and war. And that story happens to be the subject of our next episode, where we will discuss, if not the end of slavery, then the beginning of the beginning of the end. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. I hope you'll join us next time.